Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. On the heels of several weeks of predictions of a Republican juggernaut, Democrats were celebrating this week after defying expectations in a midterm that has them at the threshold of retaining power in the Senate while ceding an exquisitely narrow majority to the Republicans in the House. There is no doubt that the Democrats dodged a bullet and it was another feather in the cap of President Biden who has posted a remarkable record of legislative and political achievements in two years, notwithstanding a razor-thin working majority and poor approval ratings from the American public. And yet, it still appears likely that the Republicans will eke out a lesser-than-expected majority in the House and that the loudest and most aggressive voices there will come from the MAGA crazy contingent that is hell-bent on mounting any investigation it can muster against Biden and the Democrats while engaging in reckless brinkmanship over the debt limit. Moreover, Donald Trump, whose self-anointed candidates fared poorly overall, nevertheless waxed triumphant and continued to telegraph an imminent announcement of a 2024 candidacy. To the dismay of Republican strategists, who see Trump's entry as a surefire ticket for losing in next month's runoff election in Georgia between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Thus, notwithstanding a persuasive demonstration that the majority of the electorate is sick of Trump's brand of authoritarian politics, it remains far from definitive that the toxic effects of Trumpism are on the wane. To sift through the Democrats' surprisingly strong performance, the best result in the midterms for the party in the White House in a generation, and to analyze what it portends for the lame duck session, the next Congress, and the 2024 elections, we have an unbelievably well-qualified group of political experts. And they are... Senator Al Franken, who currently hosts the Al Franken Podcast one of the most popular podcasts on politics in the country, the most popular podcast by an ex-senator and comedy writer. He also served as U.S. Senator, of course, from Minnesota from 2009 to 2018. And that, of course, was after his incandescent rise to fame as a writer, comedian, and author. Over the past year, he has made his return to comedy with the only former U.S. Senator currently on tour, Tour. tour, yes. Exactly. I've <laughs> seen it. You should, too. It's well worth it. Senator Franken, thank you, as always, for being on Talking Fit. My pleasure, as always. And another stalwart friend of the podcast, Representative Ted Lieu. He was just reelected to California's 33rd Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives and currently sits on the House Judiciary Committee, uh-oh, and the House Foreign Affairs Committee, as well as co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. He is, of course, a former active duty officer in the U.S. Air Force and served in the Reserves, retiring with the rank of colonel in 2021. Thank you for your service, and thank you, as always, for returning to Talking Feds. Thank you, Harry. And thrilled to welcome a first-time guest, hopefully not the last, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, who served as senator for the state of North Dakota from 2013 to 2019, the first woman elected to the U.S. Senate from her state, and the last Democrat to hold statewide office or represent North Dakota in Congress. She also served as the North Dakota Attorney General from 1992 to 2000. After leaving the Senate, Senator Heitkamp co-founded the One Country Project, which helps Democrats reconnect with rural voters. She's a contributor on CNBC and ABC. And not least, in a couple months this January, she will officially step into her role as the director of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. Thank you so much for joining Talking Feds. And Senator, could I ask you to give us a quick explanation of the Institute of Politics and what it does and what you'll be doing? Hopefully what it does is inspire young people to 
participate in the political process. A lot of young people love policy, don't know a lot about politics, but you can't do one without the other. And so more than that, uh, for those of us who are adults and maybe a little more jaded, the Institute of Politics offers us hope by meeting incredibly bright and inspiring young people who really care about the country and care about their future, but also care about our collective future. So uh, proud to do it. It seems to have been one of the secret uh, weapons this last week is the greater turnout from young voters. Okay, we have tons to talk about looking ahead, but let's spend a little bit of time just looking back at the buoying results of the week. I guess the question is, were the polls that were consistently pointing to a distinctly better night for Republicans wrong, or did something happen? that created a Democratic last-minute surge over the last 72 hours. I just think polling is bad. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and it it usually has been bad, for example, in 16 and 20 in the wrong direction. And so it was scary. But my wife said this last night, Franny said this last night. She said, the American people said, stop it. This was getting really frightening, our democracy. So it turns out that Roe and democracy were bigger than the economy and crime, I think. And it's astounding. This is ahistorical, what happened yesterday. And thank God. Yeah, I mean, just by numbers, going back to 2002, where there were regular losses of 30 or more seats. You know, the pollsters did try on this. In the summer, people were calling out democracy and abortion, Dobbs, as salient, and then less so in October and November. But there's a lot of reasons, at least from the exit polls, to think abortion, for one, really did matter. Do you have a sense of whether it was a kind of national, as Franny puts it, you know, stop this crap, Or was it sort of state by state and it just added up? I think the first thing that we need to think about, and I know it's not popular, but the polls weren't really that wrong. If you consider that they were all within the margin of error, that we were were told that Nevada would be close, that Arizona would be close, Georgia would be close, Pennsylvania would be close. They were all close and they were all within the margin of error. On the kind of sweep that you would expect in the House of Representatives, I want you to think about the fact that in 2020, we went into that race thinking if we won the presidency, there would be a 20 to 30 seat swing to the Democratic side. Guess what? We lost 15 seats. And so if you think about kind of the trend line, a lot of low hanging fruit in the House of Representatives went in 2020. And so had we won those seats, you would have seen probably a bigger swing. But at the end of the day, and and most of the pollsters would tell you there wasn't a lot of public polling in August. So we weren't seeing the slide, but we also were behind the curve on the return back to the Democratic Party. And so I think a lot of wishful thinking, and I think there was a lot of junk polling that the Republicans dumped into the national average. And as a result, we ended up, you know, kind of maybe being led down the primrose path that this was going to be a big sweep. But if you looked at the raw data, it wasn't that far off. Uh, So Democrats clearly overperformed. And I think one reason is our messaging of putting people over politics and focusing on lower costs, safer communities and better paying jobs resonate with the American people. At the same time, I do think Senator Franken is right that uh, abortion uh, and democracy weighed heavily on people's minds. And you can see that with the number of Democratic Secretary of State candidates who all won. And in terms of polling, the reason it's bad is not because many pollsters are bad. It's because political polling is somewhat different. Polling in general is actually pretty darn accurate at assessing preferences. So if there was a poll, for example, that said, hey, do you prefer Lucky Charm cereal or Frosted Flakes cereal? And it came out 55-45. You can bet it's pretty accurate that across America, that's what people believe. But political polling has to do one more thing, which is predict three weeks from now, do you go buy Lucky Charms cereal, <laughs> or do you switch your mind to Frosted Flakes cereal, or do you not buy any cereal at all? And that is a pure guess. And at that point, pollsters are literally making predictions. They're no longer assessing preferences. And that's why the polling can be all over the place. 
you know, I know it's not an article of faith, but I think that if you actually objectively looked at the polling, it wasn't that far off. What we got wrong and what the pollsters got wrong was momentum. You know, they assumed that trend lines were going to continue and they really underestimated, especially in states like Michigan, states like uh, Pennsylvania, the significance of abortion, the significance of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And so I think it was more of a momentum failure to determine kind of where the wave was going. And the bottom line is, I think the mistake that the Democrats would make, and with all due deference to the congressman, is assuming that your economic message won. What won on Tuesday was uh, the Supreme Court reversing Roe v. Wade and Donald Trump putting himself on the ballot and reminding people, we don't want that chaos. We don't want that crazy back. And so Donald Trump has more to do with the Democratic victory than what I think people are giving him credit for. The demographics also of the turnout was different than I think pollsters thought, too, which was that we just had a lot of young people turning out. Very ahistorical there, right? They disappoint election after election, but not but not this time. Yeah, in a midterm. And why would young people uh, be uh, activated by Roe? Right. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> wow. Who'd have thought well, that? Huh. Who could have anticipated that? So my son, who's a Sawhorn College, my, he he's a Bernie supporter, and he was sort of down on Democrats because he didn't think we're doing enough in a whole bunch of areas. And then he saw a January 6th committee hearing and he came to me and he said, I get it now. I'm voting Democrat. And so I think wow. anyone who watched those committee hearings also probably voted. So this is your son and he didn't get it till then? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I have to put a plug in for the organizational skills of so many young Democrats. Plus, we need to be reminded that the new generation, Generation Z, is much more diverse. And when you look at the breakdown between young people, we traditionally look at brown and black people as opposed to white people. The white students voted pretty balanced. But because we have a majority in this country that is moving towards diversity, you saw that as a double factor. I think it's not just young people. It's young people of color that really carried this election. It does feel to me that the Republicans are always doing, you know, final rear guard maneuvers because they're becoming more and more a minority party. But and if the young voters are really in, that would be a game changer. Let me take it from the other direction, though, because, well, it'll be a little while, I guess, maybe into next week before the scorecard lineup is fully settled. You know, that's a blink of an eye in Al Franken election time. But is there any drama left? And here's what I mean to say. The stakes between, say, 50 versus 51 Dem seats in the Senate or 220 or 223 in the House. Is it at all meaningful or is the table basically set at this point for the next two years? 51 makes a big difference in the Senate because of committees. Uh, Right now, the committees are even and it's very hard for Democrats to get anything done. You can't change rules without getting a vote from you know, Republican, and they refuse to do that. Sometimes they just refuse to show up. So it would make make it a lot easier to do work in committee, that's for sure. So it would make a big difference. Also, we wouldn't be relying on two votes as much. We could just get one for when we need to get something for reconciliation. But no, it makes a big difference, yeah. Margins absolutely matter in the House. And let's say the Republicans have 218 votes barely having the majority, that would mean not a single member of the Republican caucus could leave, get sick, decide to do something else, because then media flips to the Democrats or vice versa. Democrats, let's say, get 218 votes, the same thing. So it could make it very hard to govern if the margins are very close. Uh, and so that, that would make a difference. I was going to add, and I don't want to step on Congressman Lou's territory, but Where they will get their majority, if they get the majority, is in moderate districts, in those New York districts. And I saw a statement today by a new congressman in New York talking about, we need to work together, we need to reach across the aisle, we can't be divisive, you know, the day of Trump is over. And and honestly, where they've picked up those votes 
is going to be very, very difficult if, if this is the slimmest of majority in the House to retain and maintain that hardcore party loyalty. Those people won't come back if they go full-on mega in the Congress. I kind of don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, it depends how narrow the margin is. But by and large, they've gotten rid of all the moderates in the House. And Ted, you can tell me if that's the case. It seems to me that moderates are either redistricted out or lost or retired. And because of gerrymandering, the the people get elected are much more right wing. And I defer to you, Ted, on this, but I I do kind of think that unless it's really narrow, that wing of the party is going to dominate and decide what happens in the House. So, Severing, I think generally you're correct. It's true that the number of moderate Republicans right now in the Republican caucus can fit in a phone booth. Uh, but I think Senator Heitkamp is correct with specifically regarding New York. A number of these districts were districts that Joe Biden won uh, by double digits or by six or seven points. These are districts that Democrats should have won. And we are going to win in two years in presidential when New York acts like a blue state. There are some very specific local and state factors that I think affected this specific cycle, which will not be present two years from now. So these Republican newly elected members have to act like Democrats uh, if they want to get reelected. I just don't think there's enough of them. Well, I, I think if we only if they only have a full four vote majority, you've yeah. got one in New Jersey and three in New York. That'll make all the difference. And we don't know yet what happens in California. But interestingly enough, on the popular vote, the Republicans actually won the popular vote in House races. And yet their majority narrowed what the expectations were. So this is an interesting election to analyze. And we don't know. We're, we're trying to do this armchair right after the vote. I think we'll know more in a couple of weeks. But yeah, I would not want to be Kevin McCarthy. I think it would be yeah. if he's going to be Speaker of the House. Miserable job. By the way, just on that, does everyone uh, agree you hear, you know, a sort of whisper saying he won't have the votes? You see any prospect for that? If the margins are very close, yeah. if let's say Republicans do get the House and it's 218 or 219 or even 220, I think it'd be hard uh, for McCarthy to unify his caucus because it only takes a handful of Freedom Caucus members to defect. So I, I don't know if he will become speaker. I think the margins do matter greatly right now. There's a lot of Twitter yak yak about uh, whether you all would vote for Liz Cheney. As you know, the speaker doesn't need to be a current member. And a lot of no. people are suggesting that the Democrats, along Liz with a Cheney. couple of people, should vote for Liz Cheney for speaker. Here's what I wanted to ask. Again, it's sort of the nuanced sort of politics or subterranean politics of the House I think a fear is that the handful of moderates will basically give a pass to the MAGA crowd for all the mischief it wants to do. In other words, they won't push back on any of the kind of ridiculous, over-the-top, aggressive agenda of investigating everything and anything. They'll um, use their chit such as they are on a little bit of legislation, maybe joining with Democrats. So if that's true, even the very narrow margin won't do a lot to blunt the kind of uh, over-the-top investigations agenda they might be planning. What do you think about that sort of supposition? Well, control of the House does matter significantly, precisely as you say to Harry, because if all the gavels change, all the chairmanships change, then yes, a number of these committees could do a lot of investigations of the Biden administration. And that's just something that we can't really do much about if we don't control the House as Democrats. In terms of what the investigations will be, I think it will be moderated because of how slim the margins are going to be. And I don't think that Biden is going to be impeached. I think if this was a big red wave, uh, that may have been a possibility, but I can't imagine that happening now. May I predict something? Yeah, there you go. It's going to be really ugly. Yeah. It's just going to be ugly. <laughs> That's my prediction. This is going to be ugly. But will it be a gift to Democrats in 2024 if the, this ugliness, the brand of ugliness involved? I think so. Yeah. 
You, I did see a tweet from you saying, run, Donald, run. Um, <laughs> maybe we can move to him now. We've stayed away for all of 20 minutes. So what about Trump? How does he come out of the midterms? And what's his next move, if you care to predict? I did repeatedly say on social media uh, for last year that Donald Trump should stop being weak and summon the courage to declare for president immediately. And I hope he does that. I hope he declares before the Georgia Senate runoff. I, I really hope he gets the courage to do that. Three votes for that? Oh, yeah. Well, I think he's wounded. Uh-huh. And there's nothing more interesting than a wounded sociopath. <laughs> Well, let's not forget the other motivation. And and Harry, I I don't want to step on your territory. You know a lot more about this than I do. But I think he is falsely assuming that if he declares his candidacy, that it will somehow inoculate him from indictment, inoculate him from the civil lawsuits that he's confronting. And so he's got an additional motivation, not just I need to be center stage and I want to be the most important guy in the room. He thinks that this is the get out of jail free card. I don't think that is. We can all debate on whether Merrick Garland is going to appoint a special prosecutor. If he does, that's tomorrow's discussion. But I think his calculation, the the former president's calculation is that he needs that protection from civil and criminal litigation that's ongoing. No, it's a great point. I'll put my prosecutor's hat on and give the answer to that. Wrong. <laughs> it's just not going to do it, although he could think it and he might think it will, you know, I- increase the furor. What about for him the calculation that Congressman Lou just really adverted to now? I assume everyone's telling him to stay the hell out of it until after the Georgia runoff, but he's confronting after Tuesday a newly muscular candidate in DeSantis. Maybe DeSantis can make moves and shore up or secure the big funders, et cetera. Did he kind of say he was going to announce two weeks after? I mean, he said the 15th, a big announcement on the 15th. Okay. So if he backs out of that, that's very uncharacteristic of him and opens him up to scorn and ridicule, which is what I do. (laughs) So well, in the only ex-senator in Tor Tor. I actually think that he's gotten his feelings hurt because he assumes that everybody who's been successful in the Republican Party is because of him. And this is disloyalty. And he's going to punish that disloyalty by announcing early and making their lives miserable. And, you know, I've said this and I don't have any reason to support it, you know, but I guess in politics today, you can say whatever you think. You know, if I'm Donald Trump, I say to the classic kind of traditional Republican Party, watch me. I'll take my base, my supporters, and I'll take a walk. You can't win elections without my base. Mm -hmm. And so keep messing with me and I'll mess with you. And so this is payback for what he perceives to be complete disloyalty by people he thinks he's made their political careers. I agree with Heidi. The best thing that could happen for Democrats in 2024 is Ron DeSantis or someone else gets nominated for president, because then I believe Donald Trump will burn down the Republican Party. I agree. I think that he is just outraged because he just assumes that DeSantis would be nothing without him. You saw it in his uh, public statements today. Can I explore this a little bit more at the House level, Congressman Lewis? So, you know, it's been easy for them all to be wild-eyed crazies in the minority. But now, if we assume that the Republicans will have a slight majority, do you perceive any kind of separation among the people who we now all cluster together as the MAGA crowd? Is there any kind of opening for a little bit of an extreme, extreme moderate split as you see it? Or do you think that other than the the three or four folks that Senator Heitkamp refers to, it's going to be a you know very unified group of, say, 215? I've learned to never underestimate the Republican caucus's ability to go full-on crazy. And yeah. I believe that we're going to have investigations of Hunter Biden's laptop, investigations of, you know, are Democrats really taking children's blood and making the concoctions and make us high? I mean, you can get some crazy stuff, and I think they can't help themselves. That is my view. All right. 
Let me go to one meaningful issue, which is the possibility of putting the country's full faith and credit at risk. So certainly there seems to be the appetite for that among a lot of the MAGA crowd. Do you think there's going to be any move, this is for everybody in the lame duck period, to try to increase the debt ceiling or somehow blunt a new majority's power to do that? Certainly hope. I hope so. Uh, I went through this a couple times, but mainly in 2011, where, of course, what we're talking about, I think your audience knows this, but the debt ceiling, which will be set to expire, I think, in the first half of next year, what they did in 11 was just hold a gun to our head and said, we will not raise it. And that is the full faith and credit of the United States is at stake. For the first time, which has never, ever uh, been uh, sacrificed like that. Yeah. Oh, it, it'd be crazy. And it would cause a worldwide economic disaster. But that's the gun to the head. That's playing chicken, right? And we had to compromise then. Obama had to compromise on spending. They've been talking about uh, Social Security and Medicare, reducing that. McCarthy has said that. Scalise has said that. But I'm what I'm hoping is that McConnell will do what they did a year ago or last December, which is basically let the Democrats and the Senate do it with reconciliation. They passed a bill last year to allow the Democrats to do that. So I obviously that's what we're we're hoping happens. If I can just add something, maybe people hear this and they think, well, what's the big deal? We did a hearing in the banking committee when they were threatening it when I was in. And all the regulators came in and said, this is a bell you can't unring. And even if they have to discount treasuries one or two percent, it will create a financial crisis. McConnell understands that. And I think Nancy Pelosi, if she doesn't have the gavel, and I think the congressman can speak better to this, the time to do this may be the lame duck, because that may be the last opportunity where the debt limit is not weaponized by the far right. I think that if Republicans control the House and the first thing the American people see is that their full faith and credit of the United States gets shredded, I believe they will be blamed. And I think folks need to understand the context of this particular election cycle, we had high inflation. I mean, it was high worldwide, and certainly the U.S. was not immune from it. And we had also higher than normal gas prices. Any competent opposition party would have destroyed the party holding the White House. That did not happen because people actually overlooked some of these economic factors and looked at the craziness of the Republican Party. If now the Republicans go in again and try to mess up the economy, I think the public will get very angry and blame it on them and hold it against them two years from now. I really think that's true, and it's happened before. And that goes back to, is there anything that matters now between 50 and 51 in the Senate? If it's isolated to the House that this hostage taking is happening, I think the blame gets more clearly focused on them. Let me follow up. How do you see Mitch McConnell figuring in this whole sort of stew over the next couple years. He's totally laser focused on, now will be, on prospects for 2024. And how does that influence him to try to temporize? McConnell's problem in this next Congress will be, there will be at least 10 of his caucus who get up in the morning, look in the mirror and see the next president of the United States. And they are not going to have his agenda. They're going to have their agenda. And they're going to use the Florida message. And, and so he may lose some ability to control the caucus based on these personal agendas. And, you know, McConnell is pretty crafty, but he's also losing some of his best lieutenants. He lost Lamar. He lost Roy Blunt, both to retirement. And so I think he's getting pretty lonely in that old guard of Republican leadership. And now he's got to deal with the likelihood of um, Al's friend, Ted Cruz. <laughs> Al famously said uh, he liked him better than any other senator, and that wasn't much. I'll, I'll do the joke. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, the joke is I probably like Ted Cruz more than most of my colleagues like Ted Cruz, and I hate Ted Cruz. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, I there didn't need go. to step on your line. But my point is that he will have to manage a self-centered group of people, um, whether it's Josh Hawley, whether it's yeah. Ted Cruz, whether it's Mike Lee, who's always out there on some kind of tangent that's not uh, consistent. And 
you think about the discipline of Mitch McConnell, but he didn't control Scott. And now you see a bunch of senators, Republican senators saying, we don't want to vote on whether we're going to put him back into leadership until after the Georgia election. Well, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement for him becoming the next leader. So we'll see what happens. I just want to add that I think it's just terribly sad he doesn't defend his wife against Donald Trump's racist attacks. I mean, this is your wife. Uh, you got to defend her. And it just makes me very sad to see that situation. Well, he just steams in private instead of actually doing the courageous thing and taking him on in public. It's time now for our sidebar function in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important concept in the news. And the concept today is limits on campaign advertising, legal requirements for what candidates must, can, and can't do in the ads that have been ubiquitous these last couple months. And to explain that important topic, I am really happy to welcome the multi-talented Jack Black, a renowned actor, comedian, and musician best known for his iconic roles in High Fidelity, School of Rock, Gulliver's Travels, Bernie, Kung Fu, Panda, Tropic Thunder, and the Jumanji franchise. Jack was nominated for a Golden Globe for his work in School of Rock and Bernie, and he received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2018. He is also, of course, the lead vocalist of the comedy hard rock duo Tenacious D, and he and his bandmate won a Grammy for Best Metal Performance in 2015. I give you Jack Black on Limits on Campaign Advertising. Limitations on Political Campaign Advertising During any federal election season, our TVs, radios, and phones are flooded with campaign advertising. Whether in the form of dramatic commercials or images of beaming candidates, attempts to attract votes are everywhere. But what are the parameters for these communications? Can a candidate say whatever they want? Can they make promises they don't intend to keep? The answer is more complicated than you might expect. The FEC, or Federal Election Commission, provides broad guidelines for campaign advertising, regardless of who or what group is behind it. The clearest bedrock principle is that any sort of public communication on behalf of a candidate must include a clear and conspicuous disclaimer. That rule applies regardless of the form of the advertisement. Example, broadcasts, radio bits, newspaper or magazine snippets, billboards, and mass mailings. And the funding source, a political action committee, PAC, a corporation, or an individual. Moreover, the rule applies whether or not the ad explicitly asks viewers to vote for a candidate, so long as it is related to a political campaign. In terms of the content of the disclaimer, it must include who paid for the communication and, depending on the type of communication, whether it was authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Thus, the familiar coda in political ads where the candidate says they approved this message. Turning to the content of political advertisements, the situation is more murky and more problematic. Unlike commercial advertising in general, which is governed by a bevy of rules to protect against false speech, political ads are essentially no-holds-barred. Effectively... A candidate can lie or hyperbolize in an advertisement and face no legal repercussions. This is a result of the court's strong enforcement for the First Amendment rights of candidates and political speakers, which provides extensive speech protection to all public discourse, which includes campaign ads. For Talking Feds, I'm Jack Black. Thank you, Jack Black, for that explanation. Just a couple points to add about the phenomenally broad reach of Jack Black. He also has, as most people know, the wildly popular YouTube channel, Jablinski Games, where he publishes gaming videos and other content. And maybe my two favorite moments of 
Jack Blackdom, his hilarious turn as Jeff Portnoy in Tropic Thunder, and his surprising tour de force singing Let's Get It On at the end of High Fidelity. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. Today's spirited debate asks, to decant or not to decant? That is the question. And the short answer is yes. But when should you decant? First off, what is it? Decanting is the process of slowly pouring liquid, in this case wine, from one container to another without disturbing the sediment at the bottom. It is important to separate the wine from the sediment if there is a lot of it because the sediment can dampen the aromas and flavors in your glass. Decanting wine also helps the wine to aerate, which is the process of introducing oxygen to the liquid. No doubt you've heard or even said the phrase, let the wine breathe. Well, that's what decanting does best, allowing those aromas to expand while making the wine more flavorful and balanced. And it's never a bad idea to decant a young, bold wine. In fact, at Total Wine & More, our guides recommend allowing an hour or two for the process to work best. This is not advisable for mature wines that just need to be separated from their sediment. Leaving a mature wine in a decanter for too long could cause flavors to become muted from too much aeration. Not only young reds and whites can benefit from decanting. Despite some controversies over the practice, decanting some sparkling wines like Maillie Brut Champagne can expand their flavors. Remember to taste your wine while decanting to be sure it is not left aerating for too long. And don't forget, the younger and more closed the flavors are when you open the wine, the more it will benefit from the decanting process. Even a few seconds of aeration or a quick swirl in your glass will do wonders to your favorite wine from Total Wine & More. However, the best rule of thumb is, whenever you can, decant. Taste and enjoy when it feels best to you. It's personal. Cheers. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. So I want to be focused on a couple years out, and I guess sort of doing it by persons is maybe as good as anything. So a very good night, no, for Biden. There was a lot of talk on this podcast last week about if the numbers are as dismal as they were looking, which, by the way, wasn't even all that dismal in the overall historical precedent, that the talk would be immediate about uh, somebody else at the head of the ticket. Does everyone agree that it's now Joe Biden's decision whether Joe Biden's going to run for president and no one's going to get in the way of that? I think that was always true, whether you had a good result on Tuesday or not. It's always been Joe Biden's decision. It's really hard for anyone who's a Democrat when there's a Democratic president to take that on, especially when by all accounts, you look at the agenda, the agenda has been fairly successful in terms of promoting democratic ideals and democratic desires. Yeah, he's got a little a spring in his step right now, too, though. Yeah, right. Does, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, his record, both politically and legislatively, for given the razor thin margins he's been working on, are are splendid. And it's a bit of a dilemma why the approval ratings don't follow. You know, once the, the Inflation Reduction Act actually kicks in and seniors are going like, holy mackerel, I only have to pay $2,000 as a cap? Wow, I didn't know that. And Al, the cost of living adjustment on Social Security is going to hit next year. All of a sudden, they look at their Social Security check and say, wow, this is a pretty good thing. Joe Biden has done a remarkable job in two years. He's gotten... More laws passed that have made huge changes that have helped American people than many presidents have done in eight years. Uh, he got infrastructure through, something the former president only talked about and wished he could have done. So it's pretty amazing what Joe Biden has done. All right. So let's shift over. We've talked about him maybe even too much, but back to Trump for a moment. So bad political night. His guys don't fare so well. They're telling him not to run. But does it do anything 
to reduce the support from his base? And if it doesn't, are all the sort of dangers he poses kind of unabated? There's a feeling of having dodged a bullet with his name on it for last week, but you know, have we really, given that the source of his power seems not really political elections as much as this kind of rabid base that loves him more than the democracy? I think his ability to cheat, if he were yeah. to be the Republican nominee again uh, in two years, has been diminished. Not only have Democratic candidates for Secretary of State won a number of these critical states, but also I do believe we will pass on a bipartisan basis, the Electoral Reform Act that would also make it harder uh, for Donald Trump to cheat if he were to become the Republican nominee. When do you think that will pass, Congressman? McConnell supports it. And and man, I mean, if Donald Trump's attacking his wife, I could see McConnell really want to get that act through and has bipartisan support. As I understand it, though, there is a danger with the act. Thank God we, they didn't win these secretaries of state. But part of the danger of the act is that if the states certify, and by the way, we have this case in the Supreme Court from North Carolina that can give the state legislatures complete control over determining who won the election. So that's not over yet. As against state courts. Yeah, I mean, more v. Harper in, in a couple of weeks. Sorry, but I, it's just such a stunning proposition. I don't think people realize how radical it is. So, Terry, can I ask you this question? How could a legislature just reverse the result? Wouldn't that fundamentally affect everyone's right to vote that's guaranteed uh, in the Constitution? How would that happen? So I, I can answer this. First of all, the, the right to vote, it's not exactly ever been articulated, and it just has different components. But they would say, as a matter of federal law, of federal constitutional law, that if a state legislature says something and a state court says something else, the state legislatures just win. And why is that? Because of a snippet of a mention of state legislatures. It's really out there. But could a federal court come in and say, look, your state voted for Biden 52-48. You can't just reverse it because you feel like it. But what's the top federal court? So the federal court that would come in and say you can would be that, yeah, that... U.S. Supreme Court. And what they would say is, it's really crazy, of course, because, you know, in every state, that's the role of the state Supreme Court, is to be the final determiner of state law. But the holding would actually be if they're, you know, go back to Florida 2000, which was the first whisper we ever heard of this. And, you know, you had the Florida legislature and the Florida Supreme Court, and they would just say, it's the same relationship as the federal to state government, the legislature, which, of course, you know, is controlled by Republicans more than any other institution in government. Their rule is final, even over that of a court. So it turns topsy-turvy everything we've ever heard. i am um, been very critical of the court in a lot of ways, continue to be, but this one seems so crazy to me. But I'm really looking forward to the argument to get a feel. I want to point out one thing. The state Supreme Court justices unanimously filed an amicus brief saying, don't do this. And I have to believe that that will have an incredible influence on the Supreme Court. I think we see the danger in this, but I really don't see the court siding with plaintiffs in this lawsuit. From your lips, they've been throwing thunderbolts and just, I think it's pretty clear that from last week, they're getting ready to throw one on affirmative action. But it does seem to me Radical, revolutionary on the one hand, but also completely, I think the legal term would be for cocked. It's just, <laughs> where does it come from? But, you know, it's a court that is really um, flexing its muscles in many ways. So you were saying, Congressman, that you think his ability to cheat is less. And look, the guy has never been over 50% even as a president, so maybe it's never going to completely go away. But you think at the margins you know, a night like Tuesday and a few more things like indictments and such really do point toward the, you know, end of our national nightmare? I think it's a good step in the right direction. And you also had Democrats doing quite well statewide. Yeah. Uh, these swing states, we won the governorships of Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. It looks like we're going to win 
the senator races uh, in Arizona and probably Nevada. And so if you're a Republican looking at this, you got to be worried because if you can't win those states in 2024, there is basically no path to victory for a Republican candidate for the White House. This is a really special panel because all of you have been in the field and had campaigns with good days, bad days, good strategies, and bad. I just wonder, what do you think are the lessons learned, if any, from this last go-round? And you know, what do you think Democratic candidates should be taking from it as they look ahead to the next cycle? I think I want to talk about the issue of abortion and choice. One of the things that happened in Kansas is they did a lot of research, what messages work, and the freedom message worked. Is this my right, my freedom, my body? And the Democrats up and down in states where this was on the ballot, in these state races where the issue of choice made such a difference, they stuck with that freedom message. I mean, they just didn't get in the weeds. They made values arguments. And I hope that what we take from this is that we can't be wonky. We have to speak to people where they are. And that's about values. I'm going to get very operational here. So yeah. one reason that a number of our Democratic incumbents in the House came back and we did so well is because they had the resources to be on TV. And so there is a federal candidates discount in buying TV ads. So basically, a candidate for Congress can buy TV at normally one-fifth the price, 20% the price of a super PAC or any other organization. So if a congresswoman or congressman spent $1,000 for TV, a Republican super PAC, for example, has to spend 5000 in order to match the, the same ratings points. And Democratic incumbents had a four- to one advantage, uh, basically, in money. And so even though Republicans in dollar amounts outspent Democrats, they really didn't have a big advantage in actual TV time because of how much our incumbents had raised. So donating to your favorite member of Congress in terms of their frontline members is very important. And second thing I want to point out is field is very important. During the pandemic, uh, we lost a number of close races by a few hundred votes, uh, sometimes by a few dozen votes, because we didn't think knocking a bunch of doors in the middle of pandemic was a great idea. We didn't do that this time. We had a massive field program in many of these districts, and I think that mattered, especially because of early voting. That's now given campaigns the ability to go after people who haven't voted yet and really drill down on the more infrequent voters. And I think the Republicans are shooting themselves in the foot by telling people not to do mail ballots and not to do early voting. And that makes it hard for them uh, to turn out the voter base that they need. I'm going to do less, less operational. I would have advice to candidates, which is go everywhere. Uh, Heidi is really focused on rural areas. This is, of course, statewide. But, you know, one of the great things about representing a state is you meet everybody. And that means you meet people who are Republicans and candidates win. Candidates can win by being really good. And part of being really good is going around and showing people that you care about them and that you're a person, a human being. And I think that's just advice for candidates. And again, that's a statewide thing. But Door knocking, of course, is is huge. And I think we dropped the ball in 20 because, you know, Unite Here, which is the hospitality unions, they were on the doors in Nevada and in Arizona and in Georgia and in Pennsylvania in the last cycle. We took ourselves out of it. The Biden campaign did to model good behavior, but they did model good behavior and had very few COVID cases. So. I would love if our candidates made sure that they got out there and talked to people. You know, when Ted Cruz went to Cancun and then he lied and said, oh, I was only going to drop the girls off. And I remember he said, oh, I'm going to go back and help. And Ben Shapiro said, uh, the right wing jerk said, uh, well, what can he do anyway? And Heidi knows that you're one of only two 
national government officials that represent your whole state. And there's a whole bunch you can do. But one of the things that you do, I learn more in disasters. I learn more in tornadoes. I learn more in floods about the people in Minnesota than I can tell you. And you see people stepping up. And you don't care whether they're Republican or Democrat. We have to have heart. All right. Now I got to go. No, 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 no. You got one minute <laughs> for talking five, but it's like the express, you know, half of life is showing up. Super, super valuable info. Our talking five, and you know, it was a happy week. So I'm just going with what was your biggest sort of high five moment of the week and why? Well, I know mine. Sarah Palin in the raw vote being down 20 points. <laughs> <laughs> no, no explanation necessary. Mine was. I want to do the five word. It was election deniers conceding. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Mine is a uh, Lauren Bobert race not called. <laughs> <laughs> and I just got to go hometown. Former Braddock Mayor Fetterman wins. We're out of time. Thank you so much to Senator Heitkamp. Senator Franken and Congressman Liu. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes Talking books, including just this week, my discussion with Maggie Haberman about her new book, Confidence Man, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Francis Fukuyama, about how he sees the trend of rising authoritarianism in the U.S. and around the world. It's also a really great way to support the show if you're so inclined. Submit your questions to talkingfeds.com contact. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry... As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Thanks very much to the impossibly talented and funny Jack Black for explaining the rules that govern campaign advertising. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.